We are in Esther chapter 8 today. It's a long chapter. We'll be going through it um, as we go, but let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you again for giving us your word, for making us your people. And as we come this morning, we ask for understanding. We have this uh, description of what you're doing, and it's hard to figure out what does it mean to us and how does it apply to our lives. So we ask that you would show us uh, how this applies to our life and what it means to us and uh, what, how we are to re- respond uh, to it. And we ask that you would do this for each of us this morning. In the name of Jesus, we ask this. Amen. Amen. Well, there was a 1983 movie, Trading Places, a comedy starring Dan Aykroyd and Eddie Murphy. The movie is actually a modern adaptation loosely based on the classic Mark Twain novel, The Prince and the Pauper. And now for the parental warning, there is some language in the film and one semi-nude scene. The movie is centered around the Duke brothers. Randolph Duke, who's played by Ralph Bellamy, who's a veteran actor, and Mortimer Duke, played by Don Amici. And they own this successful commodities brokerage in Philadelphia called Duke and Duke. And uh, they get in an argument, they hold opposing views on the issue of nature versus nurture. Uh, In other words, are people a product of their environment or is it simply genetics? And so the Duke brothers make a wager and agree to conduct an experiment switching the lives of two people who are at the opposite ends of the social spectrum and then observing the results. And they witness an encounter between the managing director of this large brokerage firm, the well-mannered and highly educated Louis Winthrop III, played by Dan Aykroyd and this poor African-American street hustler named Billy Ray Valentine, played by Eddie Murphy. We're first introduced to Valentine as this dirt poor faker who pretends to be this crippled veteran, blind and paralyzed from the waist down, rolling in a wheelchair. He's not either blind or paralyzed, but he's rolling around in a wheelchair around the streets of Philadelphia begging for money. And he runs into Louis Winthrop III right outside the office. And he is arrested at Winthrop's insistence because he suspected a robbery attempt. And so the Duke brothers witness this incident and decide to use these two men for their experiment. The next day, as Louis Winthrop III uh, comes to work, he is publicly framed as a thief and drugs are planted on him during the arrest. And he's fired from his job, his bank accounts are frozen, and he's denied entry into the Duke-owned townhome where he lives. So he befriends a a woman with a a poor reputation named Ophelia, played by Jamie Lee Curtis. And she allows him to stay at his apartment, insisting on a reward once he gets reestablished in society. He discovers he is now ostracized. He's been abandoned by his fiancée and by all of his friends whom all believe these trumped-up charges against him. 
Meanwhile, claiming to operate a uh, assistance program for the underprivileged, the Dukes bail Billy Ray Valentine out of jail, install him in Winthrop's position as the managing director of the firm, and they give him Winthrop's townhome. And of course, you see this fairly quick transformation of uh, Billy Ray Valentine to become well-versed in the business and become well-mannered, and he, in fact, becomes a skilled commodities trader, just as skilled as Lewis Winthrop once was. Well, Winthrop wants revenge, so during the firm's uh, Christmas party, he sneaks in and tries to plant drugs in Valentine's desk, blaming Valentine for his misfortune. And uh, after uh, they, they catch him doing this and he runs away, and uh, while everybody's off chasing him, uh, Billy Ray actually takes some of the drugs and goes and hides in the men's room to essentially smoke a joint that Winthrop had planted there. And unknown to him, uh, he's in a stall in the restroom, and the Dukes enter this restroom totally unaware of his presence, they discuss the outcome of this great experiment to switch the lives of these two people, and they settle their wager for one dollar. And Valentine overhears this whole exchange and now knows what has happened. So he seeks out Winthrop, who has tried to kill himself, and uh, Valentine and Ophelia, and Winthrop's former butler, Coleman, wonderfully played by Denholm Elliott, they nurse him back to health. They inform him of the experiment. And while they're deciding what to do, they're watching television, and they learn of a secret report that will soon come out on orange crop forecasts. And they recall that the Dukes have made large payments to an orange juice producer. And they realize that they're going to obtain this report and corner the market on orange juice. And so they agree to disrupt the Duke's plan as revenge, switch the report with a forgery, and successfully deliver the forgery to the Dukes. So they travel to Wall Street in New York, to the commodities trading floor at the New York Commodities Exchange, and on the trading floor, the Dukes commit all their holdings to buying frozen orange juice futures, which drives the price higher as all the other traders follow their lead. Their lead. And when the price finally hits the peak, Valentine and Winthrop come in. It's called short selling. They sell the futures at this vastly inflated price, and they make the real report public. And then the price of the orange juice futures just plummets. The Dukes are utterly ruined, and Valentine and Winthrop make an enormous profit. So the Dukes confront them on the floor of the New York Commodities Exchange, and they explain they, in turn, had made a wager whether they could get rich while simultaneously making the Dukes poor. And Valentine collects $1 from Winthrop while the Dukes see their seats on the commodity exchange taken away from them. And the movie ends with Valentine, Winthrop, Ophelia, and Coleman on a yacht enjoying a, a luxurious tropical vacation. The whole movie is a story of a great reversal. There's several reversals in the story. Uh, Lewis goes from rich to poor to rich. Uh, Billy Ray goes from poor to rich. The Dukes go from rich to poor. And it's this constant uh, uh, turning upside down of these people's worlds. And reversal is actually one of the great themes 
of history. It's found repeatedly in our literature, in our theater, musicals, operas, and the movies. As I said, Trading Places is a fairly loose adaptation of the classic Mark Twain novel, The Prince and the Pauper. The Bible, too, is filled with stories of great reversals, from Abraham and Lot to Jacob and Esau, Joseph and his brothers, Pharaoh and Moses, David and Nathan, the Pharisee and the tax collector, Saul becoming Paul, right up to the final great reversal of Satan and the divine warrior king, our Lord Jesus Christ. And our story today is another in a long line of biblical reversals. We pick up the story of Esther at the beginning of chapter 8. By now you know that Esther and Mordecai are not exactly heroes of the faith. They have made a number of selfish and sinful choices, and they've brought the Jewish people to the brink of destruction. We saw at the high point, Esther was called upon to take a life or death risk in chapter 4. And it says, when Mordecai uh, sends a message to her, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then in chapter uh, 6, we encountered the providential actions of God. Chapter 7, we saw a small-scale reversal when the evil Haman was killed on the gallows that he planned to execute Mordecai on, and it seems like the tide has turned. But there is still an order for genocide hanging over the heads of the Jews. And so much still hangs in the balance at this point in the story. And that brings us up to date, and it's time for the rest of the reversals uh, here, and that's where we'll start. We begin with Mordecai's reversal. Mordecai's reversal, verses 1 and 2. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai, and Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. It's interesting to see what happens when Esther finally comes completely out of the closet, so to speak, about her Jewishness and her relationship with Mordecai. And far from being disturbed by the revelation that his wife was Jewish, the king's response is to promote Mordecai into Haman's former position as vizier or prime minister over the empire. You can imagine the scene. There's the relief that Esther's life has been spared, at least for now. Satisfaction that Haman has been arrested and done away with and removed. Uh, Mordecai's surprise over being the recipient of Haman's estate, and Mordecai then given a great position of authority. And yet there remains a concern, a very deep concern, that the most important part of Esther's request to spare her people remains unaddressed. And that's why Esther has to approach the king again. And so we see Esther's plea for reversal, verses 3 through 6. Esther's plea for reversal. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept 
and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. And she said, if it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who were in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Now, I'm sure the king may have thought everything had been taken care of with the disposal of Haman, but in fact, it hadn't. So Queen Esther has to go once more before the king to plead for the lives of her people. Whereas before, she had always retained her royal dignity, uh, always appearing as, in some sense as the stately queen before the king. Now she throws herself down on the floor like a common beggar, crying and pleading, desperately asking uh, the king for mercy for her people. And the similarities and differences with Haman in the previous chapter are striking. He fell down before Esther to plead for his own life, and was unsuccessful. Here, Esther falls down before the king, not to plead for her own life, but for the lives of her people, and she's granted her request. And so once the gold scepter is extended, she immediately delivers her request, directly asking the king to end Haman's evil plan. Clearly in contrast to the deliberate pace she used when stating her first request and the subtle ways in which uh, she led up to Haman's identification as the evildoer, but here she makes her relationship with the king the integral part of her request. She says in verse 5, If it pleases the king, if I have found favor in his sight, if the thing seems right before the king, if I am pleasing in his eyes, there's four clauses there, sort of this preamble to her request. Two of these clauses, if it please the king, and if the thing seems uh, right before the king, deal with whether or not discussing this matter is even acceptable to the king. And the other two clauses, if I have found favor in his sight, and if I'm pleasing in his eyes, are asking if Esther herself is acceptable. And these two themes are closely linked because the only real reason for the king to give her her request is because of her favor towards, uh, uh, his favor towards her. Esther makes no reference to right and wrong. She's not talking about justice or injustice. Those are just not categories that register with the empire. They frankly don't care about right and wrong and justice and injustice. So the Jewish people's destiny hangs upon the king's response to her personally. And at first it doesn't seem like it's going to work, but the king uh, falls easily for his beautiful bride. And so we read about the king's reversal. The king's reversal, verses 7 through 14. 
Then King Ahas Uriah said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. Verse 9, one of the longest verses in the entire Bible. The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of uh, Shavan on the 23rd day, and an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews to the satraps and to the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahas Urias and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters to mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews, who were in every city, to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. On one day, throughout all the provinces of King Ahas Urias, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. A copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all peoples, and the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. So Esther's request also includes a suggestion that the order be issued to overrule Haman's order. And the essence of the king's response is twofold. First, it seems like his patience is wearing thin. He sort of says, look, uh, you know, look what I've already done for you. I I've given you all this money. I've given you this estate. I've killed your enemy for scheming against you. Um, you really can't expect me to do much more. And what you ask, I can't do. The king's order, the king's edict cannot be revoked. Um, so I think really here, the, the king is somewhat assuming that Esther's just like him. She's concerned only about herself and her own interests. And once upon a time, I think he would have been right. But now that Esther has publicly identified herself with her people, she has a new perspective. And salvation for herself isn't enough if it comes without the salvation of her people. But there's still a problem here because edicts sealed with the king's ring are irrevocable. So therefore, uh, Ahas Urias uh, offers a suggestion that opens the door for another uh, alternative path to address this dilemma. Write another decree in his name on behalf of the Jews. Apparently he had no problem with Mordecai writing a new edict that contradicted the earlier one and which is also irrevocable. So you now have two contradictory laws that are both irrevocable. May the best edict win. And so it's up to Mordecai and Esther to figure out what to say in this edict. And uh, I won't take time for a thorough evaluation, but it's clear it parallels uh, the wording of Haman's uh, one that was written earlier. 
And what it means is the Jews could now kill those who attacked them. The first order to attack and kill and annihilate the Jews is in effect. But now they have an order that says they can essentially defend themselves and uh, bring vengeance back upon anyone who attacks them. And uh, that brings us up to the end of the chapter and the Jews' reversal. Verse 15, the Jews' reversal. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white, with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple, and the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. So we end with another great reversal. No sooner had Esther conquered her fear and revealed her true identity to the king as a Jew uh, than many of the pagans around her are now choosing also to essentially pretend to be Jewish because they don't want to be killed, so it's, you know, oh, yeah, by the way, I'm Jewish too. Um, Apparently motivated by the same uh, type of fear that had originally motivated Esther. We need to know how much of the behavior in this book, in this chapter, is driven by perceptions about the future rather than understanding of the present. You look throughout this story. The actual fortunes of the Jews didn't significantly change throughout the story. Their livelihoods weren't ruined by Haman's edict. There was no instant persecution of them. In the same way, their lives aren't really changed by the new edict of Mordecai, which simply gives them the right to defend themselves. And yet they thought their lives were threatened by Haman, and so they fasted and mourned. And now they feel that that threat has been lifted. And they respond, the text says, with joy and gladness. The empire in which they lived was no better a place to live at the end of the book than it was at the beginning of the book. And furthermore, just as their earlier fasting and mourning wasn't particularly directed towards heaven, neither is their feasting and rejoicing now. They're just glad nobody's coming to kill them. There doesn't seem to be much praise or thanksgiving to God who's been working behind the scenes to deliver them. So that wraps up the story in chapter 8. And uh, I want to go back to where we started and take a look at what is now called the Eddie Murphy Rule. Because almost 30 years after its release... The plot for the movie Trading Places was part of the inspiration for new regulations for our financial markets. On March 3rd, 2010, the Commodities Futures Trading Commission Chief, Gary Gensler, stated in testimony before the United States Congress that, quote, we have recommended banning using misappropriated government information to trade in the commodity markets. In the movie Trading Places, starring Eddie Murphy, the Duke brothers intended to profit from trades in the frozen concentrated orange juice futures contracts using an illicitly obtained and not yet public Department of Agriculture orange crop report. This became known, I'm not making this up, 
as the Eddie Murphy rule. And it came into effect, it took effect in September of 2010, just two months ago, as part of the Dodd-Frank Wall Street Reform and Consumer Protection Act, specifically Section 746 about insider trading. True story, who knew your tax dollars at work? (laughs) Now, I don't know for sure, but I think it's pretty likely that Eddie Murphy and the makers of Trading Places had absolutely no idea back in 1983 that 27 years later their goofy movie would become part of the effort to persuade lawmakers to reform Wall Street. I would have thought it would have been the recession, but no. (laughs) And I doubt that they had any idea this is how it would all work out, just a hunch. But in the same way, Esther and Mordecai had no idea that when she was picked to be the king's Barbie doll beauty queen, that years later it would become evidence all part of God's plan to rescue his people. And that should make us wonder again about the wisdom of Esther's chameleon strategy. Not only is it basically unbiblical for her to hide her faith, since it required her to live as a practical pagan for five years, now it appears it may have been a mistake from the start. Perhaps if she she had revealed her Jewishness and her relationship to Mordecai back in chapter 2, the whole threat to the Jewish community could have been prevented. Maybe the king would have promoted Mordecai back then, and Esther or uh, Haman never would have risen uh, to power. Of course, we're never told what might have been, either in this story or in our own lives. Certainly, God chose to unfold events in this way through the sin of Esther and Mordecai so that his redemptive power would become abundantly clear. And whatever was the case with Esther, it's certainly true that very often we're led into sin because we're afraid of potential dangers that never materialize. How many potential dangers paralyze us with fear and worry? And then when we get to that point, they just evaporate like mist in the morning. How often are we led into sin by fear and worry? It's worth reminding ourselves that that sin that we think is going to smooth our path, in fact, usually complicates our lives in ways we couldn't possibly foresee and leads us into greater difficulties than the ones we're trying to avoid. If you think about how can any of us stand in the presence of a holy God When each of us has rebelled against him in thought, word, and deed, how can we ask God to do anything for us when we live by fear and worry instead of trusting in his sovereign grace? Who will deliver us from the edict of death that stands against us in the heavenly courts? What we need is an Esther of our own. Someone who will put aside personal interests and safety and risk dignity on our life itself in order to plead our case before God, the great king. And such a mediator is ours in Jesus Christ. To quote from our devotional uh, on Esther, and I hope you're using this. Uh, If you don't have one, see me. If you didn't get a packet, I'll get one to you. The devotional is great, and I really encourage you to use it. But in that, uh, she writes, Esther points towards Christ, our intercessor, 
The Israelites didn't just need someone in the royal house who was one of them. They needed someone who would intercede for them. This is what Christ does for us. He stands before the Father, a king of an utterly different sort than the wicked Ahas Urias, and he pleads for us. His intercession is not based on our worthiness, but on the favor he has with the king. Esther becomes for us a type of Christ. In identifying with her people, she foreshadows Christ who would leave glory and become a helpless baby in order to identify with us. He left the glory of heaven, took on the form of a servant, as Philippians 2 says, not merely humiliating himself, but being perfectly obedient for each one of us. And he takes that identification to the end, dying our death for us so that we might live. He's lived a perfect life and died a substitutionary death that we might boldly approach the throne of grace with confidence. And we need not live in fear and worry. And thankfully, the death of Christ isn't the end of the story. The day of the great reversal is coming when our suffering Savior returns as the divine warrior king to defeat his enemies and save his people. And to quote again from our wonderful devotional, there's a reason we love such great reversals. God wove justice into the fabric of the universe and into the fabric of our souls. We know when things are not the way they're supposed to be. Our spirits resonate when the upside-down world is turned right again. God doesn't always work this way uh, on this side of eternity, however. We know from the wisdom books that sometimes the righteous suffer and the proud prosper. But we also know this is not the ultimate end of the story. At the end of time, God promises that all things will be made right. Evildoers, those not covered by the blood of Christ, will suffer for their wrongdoing. Those who've been falsely maligned or persecuted will be exonerated. God teaches us to see the world through the lens of the many great reversals that we will see at the end of time. The first will be last, and the meek will inherit the earth, and the weak will be shown to be strong. And knowing that our God is a God of great reversals gives us strength to live in a world where justice does not always prevail. It gives us courage to defer vengeance and hope to believe when our circumstances are bleak. And one day, the upside-down world will be put right again, all things will be well, and all manner of things shall be most well. We look forward to the day of the great reversal. As you know, we're in the midst of a campaign to uh, multiply the ministries of the church and so let me say again, yes, we will ask you to pray about giving sacrificially, but this campaign is not about money, although we will talk about it. And we will ask you to pray about our priorities, but this campaign is not even about our priorities, about pastors, about property, about programs. This campaign is about the great reversal in each of our lives. Colossians chapter 1 says, We were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. We're sinners, hostile to God. And Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 6, he goes through a long list of uh, sins and idolatry and then says, And such were some of you. 
but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That's the great reversal. Your life has been changed. And it's been changed by this church. It's been changed by these people, by their prayers, by their words, and most of all, by the grace of their God. You should thank all of them. But there's a ton of people out there who need their lives changed the same way. And they're your friends and your neighbors and your coworkers, and they are desperate for a great reversal to come to their sin-soaked lives. They need the one who specializes in great reversals. They need Jesus. And that's what this campaign is all about. That's what the church is about. That's what this book is about. That's what the whole Bible is about. People who have Jesus helping people who need Jesus. And that's why we need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we confess as we study this book of Esther, we do so with a renewed sense of desperation. We know that this is a story not just of Esther, but of ourselves. And how sometimes we come to the end of ourselves and there's nothing left to do but to throw ourselves at the feet of the great king and beg for mercy. And Lord, though it is not fun, it's a good thing to come to the end of ourselves. It's a good thing to be in situations where all of our resources, all of our strength, all of our wisdom are simply not enough. Indeed, it is a gospel thing to feel the pain of whatever worked in the past not working in the present, and to feel the confusion of not knowing what to do next, and to feel the helplessness of being out of control. For only in those times do we fully abandon ourselves to God who alone can part the seas, take down Goliath with a pebble, feed multitudes with a few fish, and raise a dead man for the salvation of his people. Jesus, we come to you this morning, for you are that dead man who now lives. You're the one who's redeeming his church and making all things new. It's your unfailing love that we must hope in. There's no other supply sufficient to the need. There's no other strength sufficient for the task. There's no other bomb sufficient for the pain. There's no other rest sufficient for the exhaustion. There's no other hope sufficient for the crisis. So this morning, we bring our broken hearts to you. We bring our struggling families to you. We bring our divided marriages to you. We bring our conflicted relationships to you. We bring our wayward children to you. We bring our unbelieving friends to you. We bring the needs of our community to you. We bring it all to you, Jesus. And we'll trust in you and your unfailing love Astonish us by bringing such great glory to yourself. We pray in the merciful and mighty name of your Son, Jesus, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.